0: The big idea this morning that I want to communicate is that God's heart, who He is at the deepest level, is and always has been to show mercy to His people. God's heart is and always has been to show mercy to His people. Before you judge me too much, I didn't I didn't actually steal this idea of the big idea, this concept of the big idea from Josh Hurst, who was here last week. I had already planned to use that, and then he, he uh, swooped in and, uh, and used it. So why, why did I, I want to have a big idea this morning? Because we have the youth with us this morning, we have the kids in the service this morning, and I really want you guys to track with me through this message, because I want you to, to get a glimpse, I want all of us to get a glimpse of who God is, who, what God's heart is for his people. I have a question: Who has seen the movie *Beauty and the Beast*? All right, good. I won't ask if you've seen the live-action or the the original one. Um, hopefully, you've seen the original one. I was actually personally harmed by the live-action remake of *Aladdin*. And uh, it was so bad that I felt like it was a traumatic experience for me. And uh, I vowed never to watch any of the other live-action remakes to not ruin any of my childhood memories. So if you've seen Beauty and the Beast, you know the story, right? The Beast is this hard, rough, uh, angry, mean character that's been corrupted by his own pride. And through the course of the story, he meets Belle, he falls in love, through the magic of love, he turns into this really nice, gentle, sweet guy, then there's the whole fight with Gaston, and then they live happily ever after. Last, in my last message, I used an illustration at the beginning uh, that was intended to be a comparison. It was, it was intended to, to be similar to the point that I wanted to make. This morning, I'm using an illustration that is a contrast. Beauty and the Beast... Is absolutely nothing like the way that God is described in the Bible. Here's what I mean. A lot of people believe that the God of the Old Testament was kind of like the beast in Beauty and the Beast. He was mean, hard, full of kind of wrath and judgment. And then Jesus comes along, and suddenly God becomes nice, he becomes kind, he becomes loving. What I want to show you this morning is that that could not be farther from the truth. But see, the problem is that ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Adam and Eve believed lies about, that Satan told them about who God was, to question his goodness and his love for them, those lies have continued to poison our hearts and our minds to this day, and so our natural thoughts, our natural inclination is always to view God not as He truly is, not as, he, as good as He is, not as truly loving as He is, but as mean, as hard, as uh, someone who is inclined towards rejecting us and judging us. Dane Ortland in his book uh, "The Gentle and Lowly, which I would highly recommend, says, the Christian life, from one angle, is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. He goes on to say, the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts about the goodness of God. Tepid means small, weak, puny thoughts about God's goodness. Using Psalm 103 and a few other passages from the Old Testament, we are going to look at how God describes himself, and we're going to let his own words about himself chip away at the small thoughts that we naturally have about his goodness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see glorious things from your word this morning. I pray that you would by your word and your sp- the work of your spirit, you would chip away at the small thoughts, the lies that we have believed about who you are, and that we would see you for who you desire to be known as. In Jesus' name, amen. I said at the beginning that the big idea this morning is that God's heart <clears throat> for his people is, is and always has been to show them mercy. And I want to look, using this psalm, at three aspects of God's mercy. The first is the source of God's mercy, the second is the scope of God's mercy, and third is the justice of God's mercy. Let's look first at the source of God's mercy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 103, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. It says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. It may not be immediately obvious from this section of Psalm 103, but it's actually this is intended to transport us back to a very important moment in the history of Israel. The people of Israel have just been delivered from the oppression of Egypt. That's likely at least part of what David has in mind here when he says God works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. God has delivered his people. He saw the oppression and the the abuse that his people were under in Egypt. He had compassion on them, and he rescued them out of Egypt. You know that story. Now the people of Israel have come to Mount Sinai, and God is giving them his law. And Moses goes up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, and while he's gone, the people become impatient, and they get scared, and they make a golden calf. You know that story, too. Generally, when you make idols in the Bible, it doesn't go well. And in real life, too. Moses comes down, he's angry, he destroys the tablets, God is even more angry, and he, he says something to the people of Israel. He says, I'm, I'm fed up with you guys. You go ahead into the land. I'm going to still give you the land because I promised to do that, but I'm not going with you. And this is devastating for the people of Israel. And it starts a very significant discourse in between Moses and God where Moses is interceding on behalf of the people and pleading that God would stay with him that he wouldn't leave them that he would keep his presence with them. So take note of verse 7. He made his no- ways known to Moses. Now, you don't have to jump here cuz we'll show it on the screen, but I want you to uh, we're going to jump to Exodus 33 verses 13. Moses as he's talking to God says now therefore If I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways. You see the connection here. Moses goes on in verse 18 to make an even bolder request of God. He says, show me your glory. And God responds in verse 19. I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Now I want to pause here for just one minute. If, if I asked you when you first walked in this morning to, to describe in one word the glory of God, my guess is most of us would not use the word, choose the word goodness. Maybe power, maybe greatness, maybe holiness. I probably wouldn't choose goodness if I had to encapsulate God's glory in one word. But this is already a hint that something is happening here that we don't expect. So let's continue. God tells Moses to go back up to Mount Sinai, back up onto the mountain. And he's going to hide him in kind of a, a protected section of the rocks of the mountain. He's going to cover him with his hand, and he's going to pass by him and proclaim his name. He covers Moses with his hand because his glory is so powerful that if Moses saw it, he would be totally destroyed. So Moses goes up to the mountain. He hides in the rock. God covers him over and passes by him and proclaims his name. Exodus 34, 6. He says, the Lord, the Lord. This is the name we talked about last week the sacred name of God, the holy name of God, the name that is so, uh, so revered by the nation of Israel that they won't even speak it aloud. God proclaims his name twice, and then he says this, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. The first words out of God's mouth when he declares his name are that he is merciful and gracious. And then he goes on to explain and elaborate just how merciful and gracious he is. This is such a significant moment in the whole arc of kind of redemptive history that basically every theologian who's, that you've ever heard of and probably everyone that you haven't has said something about it. And so I just wanted you to hear a few uh, quotes from what some of the greatest theologians in history have said about this. For this first quote, we're actually going to play a fun game. I'm going to use a quote from John Owen, who is certainly one of the greatest Puritan theologians of all time, and also notoriously one of the hardest to understand. So I thought, with all the kids here this morning, let me pick the most complicated and difficult to understand quote. So here's the game. If you're still with me at the end of this quote, if you're still tracking with me, raise your hand, and you will win a free air high five, all right? Here we go. This is John Owen. When God solemnly declares his nature by his name to the full, so that we might know and fear him, he does it by an enumeration of those properties which may convince us of his compassionateness and forbearance, and not till the close of all makes any mention of his severity. And here's where it gets tough as that which he will not exercise towards any, but such as by whom his compassion is despised. Who's still with me? All right, great job. Boom! That was mainly for the kids, but I'm glad the adults were with me too. I don't know if any of the kids were. Here's what he means. When God chooses to show his people who he truly is, he does it by giving them a long list of qualities that are designed to convince them of his overwhelming compassion and mercy. And only after he's convinced them, convinced us, that he is overwhelmingly compassionate and merciful, he warns of the consequences to those who despise and reject his mercy. Here's another quote from an equally great Slightly less well known Puritan theologian named Richard Sibbs. If we would see God as he is pleased and delighted to show himself to us, let us know him by those names that he proclaims about himself, showing that the glory of the Lord especially shines in mercy. What is the source of God's mercy? It is his very nature. It is what naturally flows out of the essence of who He most deeply is. God's heart is and always has been to show mercy to His people. Let's look at the scope of God's mercy. You can Go back to Psalm 103, verses 10 through 17. It says, "...He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities." For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it's gone. But the The place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. If you are following, if you're listening carefully, you might have heard three measurements in this passage. Verse 11, as high as the heavens are from the earth. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west. Verse 17, from everlasting to everlasting. These are three ways that the ancient Hebrews expressed the concept of infinity. Something that has no end, that's too big to be measured. It's always fun to talk with kids about the concept of infinity. I remember a few years ago, one of my kids had a way, not one of the ones here, don't worry guys, Um. He has a way like when we're riding in the car, he'll just be like staring out the window and just like blurt out some kind of like really deep question. And so we were riding in the car one time and he said, so how big is infinity anyway? I was like, well, it's like bigger than the biggest number you can possibly imagine. So like a thousand? No, way bigger than a thousand. So, like, a million? He really didn't even know like what a million was compared to a thousand, but that he knew it was a big number. No, even bigger than a million. So, like, yeah. So I'm thinking for just a minute. A million and (laughs) fifty. The reality is, most of us have a hard time really comprehending infinity. Like, nothing in our natural experience just goes on forever. And this is exactly the point that David is trying to make. And he makes it even more strongly by using three expressions of infinity. It's kind of like when you were a kid, or at least when I was a kid, you, you, you know when you like said something uh, at the same time as someone, then someone calls a jinx on you? And you've got to say like, double jinx, then like triple jinx, then jinx infinity, and then someone was always like trying to up It's it like infinity times infinity, which isn't actually any bigger than infinity. So <laughs> fine. <clears throat> this is David's way of saying that you can go on forever in any direction of time and space and never ever ever come to the end of God's mercy. For those who accept God's free gift of salvation, who receive him as he desires to be known, you step into a stream of mercy that never, ever, ever runs dry. And friends, we need to be reminded of this for all of the reasons that we talked about last week and that we talked about at the beginning of this message. Sin makes us forget God's benefits. He makes us forget, sin makes us forget who God truly is at his deepest level. If you hold your thumb up close enough to your eye... You can, like that, Um, you can actually block out the sun. If you hold it up, I wouldn't recommend doing it, especially kids, like you're not supposed to look at the sun, but you could do it. If you hold your thumb up close enough, you can block out the sun. Now, I have an important science question for the kids. You can just yell out the answer. Which is bigger, your thumb or the sun? Good, yes, right answer. The future is bright. (laughs) Just because your thumb looks bigger than the sun doesn't make it actually bigger than the sun. Just because your sin feels too big, too shameful, too overwhelming, too powerful for God's mercy doesn't make it true. God's heart is and always has been to pour out mercy on his people. And his mercy is infinity times infinity times bigger than your sin. You will not and cannot ever come to the end of God's mercy. Church, if there is anything inside of you this morning that feels like, I just, I don't feel like I can come to God right now. Or maybe even worse, you feel like, you know what, I don't think God really wants me to come to Him. Maybe you had that thought this week because of a failure that you experienced. And you thought, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to have a couple days reading the Bible and then, I'll feel, and then I'll feel like I can come back to God. Friend, repent of that thought. That's not God's heart. God's heart is and always has been to pour out mercy on you. And not only does God love to show mercy, it's part of the deepest level of who he is, He has an infinite amount of mercy to give. It's like, I want you to imagine that you really, really, really loved ice cream. But you only had one little pint of ice cream to eat a year. You have a problem, right? The amount of ice cream that you have doesn't match the amount that you love ice cream. It's not the way it is with God. He loves to show mercy, and he has an infinite amount of it to give. He just keeps pouring it out, pouring it out, dumping it out as much and as often as we will receive it. Church, praise him. Let's move finally to the justice of God's mercy. Maybe you've had this thought up to now. What about God's justice? If we only talk about God's mercy, if we just cherry-pick verses that talk about God's mercy, then we will make people think, people will think that God doesn't take sin seriously. And I think that's true to a certain extent. The overwhelming reality of God's mercy does not mean, it's not the same thing as him being lenient towards sin. We saw that in Exodus 34. God says, after enumerating the long list of his compassionate attributes, he says, I will by no means clear the guilty. The Bible talks a lot about God's justice and judgment. And so we need to understand how God's justice and his mercy fit together. There are two places that justice shows up in this passage. If you go back to Psalm 103, verse 6, we see justice here. It says that God works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Here we see God's justice expressed for the benefit of, Of us, to uh, the benefit of those who are oppressed. God cares about injustice in the world. He cares about all of it. That's why it says He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He cares about the unborn. He cares about those who are harmed by abusive relationships. He cares about people who are taken advantage of by predatory lending. He cares about people and communities that have been harmed and oppressed because of their ethnicity and their race. He cares about people who have been harmed by the evils of human trafficking. He cares about every person who is oppressed right now by lifelong slavery to sin and Satan. And all of this is an expression of his compassion and mercy. God's compassion for those who are oppressed compels him to execute justice on their behalf. The second place we see a reference to justice is in verse 10, but here it looks a little different. Says God does not deal with us according to our sins, and he does not repay us according to our iniquities. So, how is that just? Let's not miss the clear implication here, the clear implication here, that there is a way that our sins deserve to be dealt with, there is a payment that our iniquities require. What would it look like for God to deal with us according to our sins? It would look like Deuteronomy 28. Before the people of Israel are preparing to go into the land, God renews his covenant with them. And after telling them all of the amazing benefits and blessings of following him, he gives them some very serious warnings. He says but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I commanded you today then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you cursed shall be you shall you be in the city Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. And it goes on for 25 more verses of curses. Not a good place for a rhyme. And concludes in verse 45. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commands and his statutes that he commanded you. God's justice demands punishment for sin. We can't escape this reality if we're going to take the Bible seriously. We can't. So how can God be just and not treat us as our sins deserve? See, God's mercy creates a problem in the very fabric of the universe. Psalm 89, 14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. So if God's justice is violated the very foundation of his rule is called into question. God must satisfy his justice to magnify his mercy. And in the mind of God, from eternity past, he has and has always determined to do just that. I hope by now that you are starting to see from God's own description of himself, that he is a God who loves to show mercy to his people. He delights in showing mercy to his people, as Micah 7 18 says. God's deepest heart is to be known and worshiped as a God of steadfast love and mercy. Almost never in the scriptures does it say that God takes pleasure in judgment. Lots of times it says he takes pleasure in showing mercy. And in a number of places it says he specifically does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather when they would turn from their ways and return to him, like in Ezekiel 33.11. But there is one place where the Bible says that God delights in judgment. If you want to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53... Isaiah 53 is one of the clearest prophecies about the the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and God's plan to save people. It describes a suffering servant who will carry the sorrows and take the sins of his people. It describes a number of very specific uh, aspects of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. But in verse 10, the lens of Isaiah 53 turns from Jesus the suffering servant to God the Father. And it says this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He speaking of God the Father has put him Jesus to open, I mean to grief, when his soul made an offering for guilt He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, there's something that isn't immediately obvious from this passage that I want to make sure you see. The beginning of verse 10 where it says the will of the Lord. That word will there, it's a Hebrew word, hafetz. It's the same exact word, the, the exact same word as, that shows up in Micah 7.18. Maybe you remember Dave Sharp read Micah 7.18 two weeks ago before I preached the last message. It said, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, And passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. That word delights there is the same exact word that's used here in Isaiah 53 that's translated in the ESV as will. Some translations go as far as to say it pleased the Lord to crush him. We could rightly translate this. It delighted the Lord to crush him. It brought God pleasure in the infinitely complex emotional world of God. It brought God pleasure to crush his son. It brought God pleasure to take onto himself the punishment that you and I justly deserved. Why? Because it meant that he could pour out more mercy on you and on me. Follow me here, church. God's heart is and always has been to show mercy to his people. He has infinite stores of mercy ready to be poured out. The only thing restraining him from pouring out a deluge of mercy On anyone who would receive it are the righteous requirements of his justice, which he has fully satisfied once and for all in the cross of Jesus Christ. The dam is broken. The floodgates are open, and there is nothing standing in God's way from pouring out his lavish, infinite, overwhelming mercy on anyone and everyone who would receive it. Church if that doesn't stir your heart with a fresh affection and for worship and worship for God this morning I'm just I pray that that God's spirit would cause this truth to come alive in a fresh way You will never be as happy or as holy as you are when you are overwhelmed with the reality of God's mercy in your life The idea that a greater awareness of God's mercy would cause us to sin is simply not true. That's not the way that it works. We don't sin because of an excess understanding of God's mercy. We sin because of a deficiency in our understanding of God's mercy. Jesus said it this way, those who have been forgiven much love much. In other words, those who are most aware of God's mercy in their lives will be the ones who most live lives of loving obedience to him. You will always, always, always do more out of the knowledge that you are loved and forgiven than you ever will trying to be loved and forgiven. I'm going to ask the band to return. We need to be reminded of these truths, church. I think if we're honest, all of us drift into seeing God as primarily angry or disappointed with us. It's not God's heart. And before we move to worship, I just want to briefly address anyone who would say that Maybe you haven't come into a relationship with this God that we've been talking about this morning. You don't personally know the God that I've described. My prayer and and strong desire for this message was that there would be people who come to see, maybe for the first time, who God truly is, who He desires to be known as. And if that's you, if there's something inside of you that has was stirred up this morning and you feel like, I want to know more, I want to understand more about this God, I'll be here right at the front, at the, at the end, and I'd love to talk to you. Or if there's someone that you came with that you'd feel more comfortable talking with, please don't miss the opportunity that you have right now, that God is offering to you. If you are here this morning, if you're hearing this message, it's because God's heart, his deep desire is to pour out his mercy on you. To amaze you with the incredible benefits that we talked about two weeks ago. There is a God who is ready to forgive all of your sin. Who is ready to heal all of your diseases. Who's ready to redeem your life from destruction. Who's ready to crown you with steadfast love and satisfy you with good. Now and forever. And all you have to do is receive it. Let's pray.